capital that are interested in alternative investments at the high net worth level, right, through registered investment advisors and so forth. So I think real estate is likely to continue to be pretty resilient, even in the face of high interest rates. Uh, but it would be nice to see them calm down a little bit. You're listening to Ice Cream with Investors, a podcast that is dedicated to teaching you how to better invest your money so that you can live a more intentional life. I'm your host, Matt Four, and it is my goal to teach and empower you to remove the roadblocks to your financial success. All right, Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Well, we like to start with the difficult questions here. What's your favorite ice cream? Favorite ice cream, I would say uh, Rocky Road. Okay. Okay. That's the one with the marshmallows in it, right? Yeah, it's got it's got almond, chocolate, almonds, and marshmallows, yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, because it already has almonds and marshmallows, do you feel like you have to throw toppings in it or? No, I usually don't throw any toppings on that, on that one. I, you know, I don't, you don't want, you don't want too many marshmallows, prefer the almonds to the marshmallows, but nice to have a little mix in there. Agreed. Agreed. Well, Matt, tell our listeners, what's the scoop? What do you do today? Uh, well, I'm the CEO of uh, two companies, Fairway America, which is an investment company and Veravest, which is a service provider. We both companies cater to uh, real estate entrepreneurs that need to raise capital from high net worth investors and how to structure funds, administer those funds and provide capital to those funds. So yeah, running, running two companies that are very related to one another. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you've been in the real estate game for a long time. Um, take us back. Where did your real estate journey begin? You know, I started work for a company out of college called Household Finance, which is a consumer finance company, but they did a lot of uh, real estate line of credit, uh, home, home equity loans. So that's really where I started learning about real estate valuation, appraisals, uh, you know, loan to values, all that kind of stuff was, was through that. And then, you know, kind of took, took it from there. But, but yeah, all the way back to my consumer finance days. Gotcha. From my understanding of your history, you jumped from consumer into the commercial side relatively quickly. Is that right? Yeah, I think I worked there for a while and then I bounced around at a couple of shops, but I went to work for a California-based thrift and and that that company did is thrift and loan, which is kind of the old days when they had savings and loans, right? Same idea. Um, but we made a lot of commercial real estate loans. So we, we would make first trustee kind of hard money loans to all manner of different commercial real estate types. That's kind of how I got involved in commercial initially. So my, my early days, Matt, were all really in the lending business. And since then, we've done a lot of equity, bought a lot of property and all that. But, but yeah, the early days was all in the lending business. And that's how I cut my teeth in commercial real estate. Were there a lot of uh, hard money commercial lending back in the day? No, not nearly as much as there is today. I think, you know, debt funds, there, the, you know, what you know of today, that really didn't exist. A lot of these thrift and loans, there were um, private money shops that did some of that stuff, but it, it really has grown up a lot in the last 30 years. So no, I don't remember a lot of, a lot of commercial real estate, you know, non-bank type lenders back in those days. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I've heard a story of how you started Fairway America and uh, really the interest that you had to pay on the loan to get the business started. And given that we're recording this in June of 2023, I want you to talk us through your shift from doing the debt side to uh, kind of brokering deals. Yeah, well, I think the the Great Recession is really what gave rise to that. And, um, you know, coming out of the grand, there's a whole story around that in terms of what our business model is today. But I, I would say that until 20, 
12 or so we did vast majority of the deals we did were loans starting in 2012 2013 we we launched uh what was then our sixth fund and we allowed in the in the mandate in that fund included the ability to to invest in equity so we started doing equity deals in about 2012-13 and since then have done a, a lot of equity we've got we've done a lot more equity in the last 10 years than we have debt Gotcha. Gotcha. But didn't your first loan to start a business, wasn't it like 21% interest or, or something like that? Did well, I Well, right yeah, now? I borrow, I mean, our, my initial capitalization for the company was 10, I borrowed $10,000 from American general finance company at, at a rate of 21% interest. And, you know, I bought a, I bought a laptop and a number of, I don't even think it was a laptop. It was probably a desktop at the time and a number of things, but that, yeah, that was our initial capitalization was, was 10 grand from American general at 21% interest. Wow. Wow. Do you remember what year that was off the top of your head? 1992. Gotcha. Gotcha. How did you deal with the interest rates that were that high? Because I think we're in an interesting market. We'll get into this later in the conversation where people think seven, eight, 9% cost of capital is extremely high. I think we don't have to look too far back before we realize that cost of capital used to be way higher so how were you able to kind of operate in those time periods? Well, yeah, if you go all the way back to the early 80s, you know, rates were prime rate was, you know, pushing 20. So crazy numbers. But, uh, you know, fortunately, it was only $10,000. Right. So, you know, it's in gross dollars. The payment wasn't that high on 10 grand. So I think even in those days, Matt, there, you know, consumer finance, if you were borrowing money from household finance or American general or beneficial back in the day, that, that's just what the rates were, you know, 15, 20, 25, 30%. Uh, but the dollar amounts were small. Uh, so I, interest rates on real estate loans were not nearly that high, even in those days. Gotcha. Do you remember what uh, interest rates were back in late 80s, early 90s for commercial real estate? Yeah, I'd say, I mean, we were doing deals at the company I worked for before I started Fairway at, at like Prime Plus three and four. And I'd say the prime was when I started uh, in 90, I guess it would have been 88 or 89. They were at prime was at 11. So they were at 13, 14%. But you could probably get bank loans at some number cheaper than that, but not by a lot, you know, 10, 11%. So it was, it was a lot more expensive even than the elevated rates today. Yeah. Do you think, um, what did that do to the operating environment? If you could remember back to those days, was it more risk adverse? Um, did you have to double click on some things? Like talk us through that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, at the time it seemed perfectly normal to me, right. I was a, you know, young guy coming out of school and I didn't know any different, right. Cause that's what rates were at. So I didn't, it didn't seem nearly as uh, big of a deal as it does today. And rates are only, you know, you can get a, you can get a commercial real estate, you know, deal, an agency deal on multifamily and the fives still, which historically I would have considered that to be fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. Now, relative to what it was, you know, 18 months ago, it's not so great, but relative to, to what it's been historically, it's, it's still pretty darn good. So I, I don't, I think some of it too, man, is it just depends on how much time goes by. I mean, people had become used to it by then. So I think your leverage levels were just reflected in, and values of real estate reflected the fact that rates were just a lot higher at that time. So I don't think it was a lot different than it is today in terms of how people operated. It's just, they were accustomed to higher interest rates and, and greater debt service. Yeah. Yeah. I guess if it pencils out, it pencils out at the end of the day. Yep. 
Um, all right. So flash forward back to 2012, you decided to take on more equity positions. Um, were you doing single deals or were you doing funded deals like pools of capital at that point? Uh, we were we were doing pools and it might help to give you some context of you know kind of how, how we got there. But uh, I had a fund that was uh, in 2000 that we launched in 2008. Literally, we launched that fund right when Lehman Brothers was going down. Uh, in, in bankruptcy and since this is September of 2008. And it was a fund that uh, was leveraged with a, a credit facility from Wells Fargo Capital Finance. We had a $50 million line and we brought in the, the, the rest of the money from uh, private investors on a note basis. So it was essentially, it was a highly levered fund, but we were borrowing money from Wells at the time at like 3%, 3.5%, and we were lending it out at 12 Right. So the, there was a huge spread in it and the, the margins were extremely good. But when the market melted down, Wells ended up it was a three year term and Wells didn't want to renew that line. So when I in in 2011, when they failed or refused to renew the line, I had to wind that fund down. So we're in the middle of the Great Recession. I'm in a position where I have to start liquidating assets in a terrible market. Um, and I had to go to all my investors and say, hey, we're going to have to wait to get you your money back because, you know, I have to sign a forbearance agreement with a senior credit facility. And, you know, that was that was a very difficult time. So winding that fund down was kind of the catalyst for taking a real deep look at our business model. And during that time, Matt, I had a number of, uh, I'd say, friends and people I knew in the real estate business who asked me advice and guidance around uh setting up a fund. They said, Matt, I, I know you know a lot about funds. You've run them. You know, now you're winding one down. I'm thinking about setting up a fund for a certain real estate strategy. You know, what do you think of this and what kind of prep should I do and how should the splits work? And, you know, ask me a lot of questions. And I realized at the time how difficult it was for me back in the day to start my own fund. And all I really had was the ability to go to a lawyer and lawyers are, are they're necessary um, you, you have to have a securities lawyer. I mean, it's part of the deal, but it's like it's like a spoke in a wheel. I mean, it, you know, if you don't have the spoke, you know, the, the tire's not going to run. But it's not the main ingredient, right? It's just one aspect of running the fund. So, uh, from a manager's perspective, we were able to start. We so we, you know, I'm winding a fund down. I need a business model. So I started doing advisory work for other real estate people who raised money from investors who wanted to make the leap from doing it one deal at a time to doing it in a pooled investment fund. And since that time, Matt, this, you know, fast forward to today, this is 11 years later, I've played our Fairway and Verivest have played the lead role in setting up probably north of 300 or more funds in the last 10 years for people all over the country running one sort of real estate strategy or another. And, and that's been the core of our business model. And, and the idea was for us that by doing that, we were going to meet other entrepreneurs, real estate people who uh, whose strategy we liked, and then we would invest in and alongside them and leverage off of those folks to help you know, grow our business. So that was the basic thesis. So in a lot of ways, you know, I, I think I spent the first 20 years of my entrepreneurial career doing a certain thing that the great recession kind of turned on its ear and it, it really completely transformed our, our business model. And we've been doing that ever since. Just so that this is recorded and stays on the internet forever. I want to compliment you on your foresight and business strategy of I'm going to help people trying to put together funds 
so that I can go be an investor in those funds and I basically get to underwrite them. So you said you set up 300-ish or so uh, funds right. in your decade or so, but you've probably underwritten thousands at this point oh, because yeah. oh, of that. Yes. Yeah, more than I can count. Yeah, that's a that's just a very interesting business strategy. When I heard you talk about that in my research, um, that I never even thought about, like sell the tools for these syndicators so that you can go be investors in those syndicators as well. That's very interesting. Yeah, so we've helped a lot of folks that have done them one deal at a time, but you know, doing a fund is very different, right? There, it's an order of magnitude more complicated because you have investors, you have multi- multiple deals, multiple assets, multiple investors coming and going at different points in time. So how you treat it, how you calculate it, how you, you know, how you charge uh, fees, etc., is all just different than how you do it in one deal at a time. So. Helping people navigate that, make good decisions, and you know, a lot of this man is born out of my own experience, and and I've made a lot of mistakes. So trying to help other people avoid some of the mistakes that we made and do it right from the beginning, there's a real, there's a huge value proposition in doing that, and if it it, it creates relationships for us that that you know some of our best uh, investments and clients have come out of uh, people that we've helped set up a fund. So I want to take the next part of this conversation in two forms, one from the investor side and one from the fund manager side. So mm-hmm. if you're talking to a syndicator today, so in our business, right, we raised 42 million last year, mostly from single deal sources. I understand the pain of launching a deal, raising a deal, closing the deal, moving on to the next one and the benefits of a pool. But what are some of the things that I, as a general partner and syndicator, need to think about before I move to the fund model? Yeah, there's a lot of issues there, and that's really what we help people walk through. But I always start with, you know, what is your asset model? What kind of deals are you doing? How big are they? How long, you know, what are their characteristics? How long do they last, right, before they go full cycle? Because that drives velocity of money and determines how much you're, you're, you need to raise. You know, what, what deal volume do you have access to that you can reliably predict? you're going to be able to fund because that helps you determine whether you want to even do it or not in the first place. Right. And then once you figure those things out, then what is the structure of that fund? And it needs to match the asset model so that there's a logical flow from, you know, starts at the asset level and then it flows into the fund. So, but the fund needs to be structured in a way that reflects the reality of the likelihood of the way that the assets perform right at the fund level. Um, and then from there, you know, there's all kinds of questions around, you know, what fees are you charging? You know, how do the promotes work? Because generally in a pooled investment fund, the promotes are not paid until all the capital is paid back, which means you're not earning a promote on every single deal, right? You're earning it at the fund level after you've paid the capital back, which generally means you're in the second half or, or the final third of, of the assets of the fund before you're actually in the money. So then there's a lot of financial modeling around that. It's like, do you have the capital necessary to carry, you know, the costs associated with running that fund? And how do you build the fees in such a way that, you know, it's all you're aligned with the investor. You're not feeing the deal to death, the fund to death, you know, but you have enough money to actually execute on what the investors are expecting you to be able to do. So all of those types of things, Matt, are, are considerations that I think if people haven't done it before, it's hard, it's hard to really know how to you know balance all of those things and that's what we that's kind of what we help them go through what's like the number one common thing you see most in like syndicators not think about when they're going down this rabbit hole because you, you mentioned uh, a lot of different things there I just 
want to try to capture they, the one or two? I'd say they don't understand the, the economics of, of how a fund works compared to a syndication. Uh, they extrapolate what they know on a syndication into a fund model and they misinterpret the way that it works in terms of the cash flows to the fund investors and to themselves. So walking them through the realities of, of how the money flows is probably the single biggest you know, thing that we, that we find people consistently um, don't really grasp in the beginning. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. Now I want to take that hat off and, and pretend like we're talking to an investor. So mm-hmm. to our some of our listeners out there, they may not be familiar with this idea that you can have a fund that um, invests in multiple different assets um, mm-hmm. across the fund. What are some of the things that I should be thinking about as an investor before I look at investing in a fund? I'd say the number one thing I always tell investors is, you know, pick your jockey wisely. Right. It's it's the manager is because at this point, the investor typically does not have any choice or insight into the individual assets. They're investing in a strategy. Right. That has been articulated by a manager, but they don't get to pick and choose the assets. So they're abdicating a tremendous amount of responsibility to the manager without a lot of visibility into the choice of what goes into that fund. So therefore, you know, track record is super important and underwriting the manager on the front end is very important, which can be very hard to do for a high net worth investor who may only be investing 50 or a hundred thousand dollars, which, you know, is an important number to them, but it's that much, that money doesn't really move the needle that much for, for the manager. So balancing, you know, what the manager is willing to give you with what, you know, with getting enough information that, you know, you're dealing with somebody that you can trust that's competent, capable, and trustworthy is, is the number one thing. Yeah. And as a guy that's probably written underwritten thousands of operators and GPs out there, what are some of the things that you look for in an operator before you decide to invest your own personal capital or decide to partner with someone? Um, well, track record is one, so it's an easy one to ask for. Um, it's harder to prove that whatever information they give you is real. Um, I can tell you that uh, having underwritten thousands of these people that oftentimes the track record they purport to have doesn't really match with the numbers once I, once we you know go in and actually try to verify those numbers. So that's a scary proposition to many uh, investors. Um, uh, yeah, so I, I think track record is one. We, we run background checks on everybody. I'd certainly ask for a background check. And a lot of managers, you know, it's not really practical for every investor to get a background check on a manager, but you should be able to at least get one and see if the manager has one, if they've thought about it. Um, other types of due diligence, I mean, you can get as deep as you want to in it, Matt, but I'd say for most practically speaking for the average high net worth investor, if they can get background checks, references, and um, track record information, that's a really good start. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and on the references point, like even in my own business, I'm going to give you some of our best references, right? Exactly. And so me underwrite, because I'm an investor in other people's deals, just like I am in my own. But one of the things that I do is ask like, hey, Matt, when something went wrong, what did you do? And I always ask for two examples, because the first one most people probably have an example of where, uh, yeah, I shouldn't have yeah. done that. And I had a bad experience, but if they can come up with two, then that tells you kind of a track record of how they're going to deal with bad situations. 
Yeah, and I always try to triangulate references. They're the, they're, these are not the ones they gave me, but it's, you know, especially with the internet these days, it's not that hard to find somebody that you can talk to that those people know that they didn't turn you on to directly. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that we always, uh, we always try to do that. Uh, yeah, we're, we're capable of doing more. I mean, I, I'd characterize us as, you know, quasi-institutional investors at this point, right? I mean, we can do a lot more than, than the average high net worth, but you know, is like a lot of the, you know, this, a lot of them online, there's a lot of resources now for high net worth investors online that didn't used to exist that, you know, they have forums and communities and, and resources that they can go to find other people that, that, you know, can share experiences, right. you know, help, help choose managers. Right. And I was having this conversation with my partner uh, earlier today. The main thing that you should look for, I think, in a sponsor is somebody that will communicate the good and communicate the bad. So we um, we like to always communicate the bad. We always like to try to do it over the phone if we can. That way, investors at least hear from us and they're not just seeing an email or seeing it on social media or something like that. Yeah, communication is huge. You know, when we had to wind our fund down in 2000. 11, the, the communication, the way in which I heard one of my securities attorneys said it one time, but, you know, bedside manner is a lot more important for doctors than, than even necessarily pure medical expertise, right? It's how you treat people that matters the most. So uh, communication is huge. I think uh, Malcolm Gladwell did a study actually on like doctors propensity to get sued in bad time situations. And like, that was the one thing is like how they treated the patient before and after was the number one likelihood to get sued. That's exactly right. Um, I want to double click a little bit on Veravest and talk to us like we're syndicating and things like that. So we've put together a couple of funds on our end. Um, we are still looking for the perfect solution. So I'm going to use this um, time to be a little bit selfish here. But what are some of the back office administrative tasks that somebody that's putting together funds versus a deal focused um, syndication business, what are some of the back office functions that you can kind of take off their shoulders so that they can go operate? Yeah, the first one is really consulting and advising on putting the structure together in the first place. So, and then we, we have partnerships or, or um, relationships with a number of law firms that, that have signed off or that have prepared the documents originally, but we'll help people put it together properly in the first place, a pooled investment fund. Then we perform fund administration services so it's, it's the accounting, the, the waterfall accounting and pooled fund accounting uh, for, the, for the manager. We do third-party administration, which we generally find in the institutional world, that's an absolute must, right? You have to have third-party administration. It's not even an option. In the small balance or you know, high net worth, sub-institutional world, it's kind of all over the map. Some people do it themselves. You know, some people... Uh, some people, you know, hire a, a local accountant that they have used for other things, but aren't necessarily fund administrators, right? So that's really the big piece. And then on the fairway side, we look at anybody that comes through the Veravest side that we help set up a fund and we do the administration for our objective is to find as many of those as possible that we like and that we want to invest in. So it's really a combination of advisory, admin, capital. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Which if you've spent any time doing the accounting on the back end of any of these syndications, it's uh, not something I think most real estate operators like doing. That Yeah. It's, I mean, real estate people are, you know, by and large, and this is a broad statement, right? But they, they like real estate. They like kicking dirt. They like finding property. They like valuing it. They like, you know, dealing with the construction, hiring a contractor, getting the leasing agent, getting it leased up, 
operating it, managing it, selling it. They don't like, you know, pooled fund accounting, you know, and the difference between accrual and cash and net asset value calculations and unit prices and redemption mechanisms and, you know, all the other things that go along with running a fund and doing, doing the accounting properly for it. If you're listening to this and your mind just exploded because you had no idea what half of that meant, welcome to the club. I am too. My uh, my yeah. eyes are glossing over over here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you know, try not to bore people with all that, but I think the main point is that I, I find that people are best suited to do what they're really good at and the degree to which you have the ability to have other folks that are good at the other component parts of it, uh, that's better than attempting to do it yourself. That's right. That's right. I would agree. Um, Matt, we were chatting a little bit beforehand. I mean, you went through the savings and loan crisis in the 80s, the dot-com boom, the great financial crisis of 2008, the great recession, whatever you want to call it. And then you call, COVID, me, you call and, me old Matt? No, no, I'm saying you've, you've earned your gray <laughs> hairs in this industry I'm, and very experienced. I'm just kidding. Man. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I, don't have, I don't have no hair for no reason. <laughs> Well, I am trying to, to to butter you up to get a uh, good insight to how do you see the market today? And obviously, the real estate market is not a thing. It's all location dependent, asset class dependent, and it's a real estate markets, not market. But I'm yes. um, just curious, like, how are you seeing things today? And talk us through where your head's at. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right on your last point that I, there is no such thing as a market, right? There's all different types of asset classes. And then even in, in multifamily, for example, there's class A, you know, urban, there's suburban, there's walk up, there's high rise, there's all kinds of different things. So I think it very much is a micro uh, situation, not a macro, you know, but that said, if I had to paint a broad brush, you know, I think certain asset classes, multi-storage, uh, industrial hold up pretty well. Office, obviously, post COVID is a is a very difficult asset class. You know, I think the biggest impact, of course, lately is interest rates. Right? Are they going to stay elevated? And and you know, historically, as we talked about earlier, they're not that elevated. They're only elevated relative to what they've been at for the last seven or eight years, right? Which has been at historically you know rock bottom numbers. So. Um, I, you know, I, if I had to guess, man, I would say I suspect they level off. They stabilize somewhere at or slightly lower than they are today. But, you know, you're seeing the, the, the economy seems to be super resilient, right? It seems like we added a whole bunch of new jobs and, you know, inflation is very stubborn. So the Fed's got their work cut out for them here. But uh, interest rates are the number one thing and, and the, the uh, capital market uh, efficiency or functionality is super important for stability of real estate. So hopefully we, we can see some stability on the capital market side and that should calm things down a little bit. Big picture. I do think there's a, there's a huge amount of money that has been assembled for investing in real estate, both at the institutional level and, you know, record levels uh, of capital that are interested in alternative investments at the high net worth level, right through registered investment advisors and so forth. So I think, Real estate is likely to continue to be pretty resilient, even in the face of high interest rates. Um, but it would be nice to see them calm down a little bit. Yep. Yep. Are there any asset classes or markets that you've got a keen eye on that you're kind of very interested in right now or that you're personally invested in? Um, I've invested a lot and and we, we did a lot. We went big in storage in the mid teens and that's paid that's worked out really well we've did a lot of multifamily in the last few years i'm still bullish on multi you know generally speaking and again it's it's you know uh 
like we're not doing class a you know multi and you know downtown areas right we're doing a lot of class b and c you know value add multifamily where you know that you're gonna have you know lower rents and and a lot of sustained demand for that um, i think uh b2 b2r some build to rent we've done some of that that has uh, i think that holds up uh pretty well i think and a lot of it for us is as we look at investing in managers, it's, as I said earlier, we like to pick the right jockey. And if we can find good people who have a good strategy in whatever market it is they're in, we're pretty open to different uh, property types and asset types, uh, depending on who our partners are. So um, yeah, I'd say multi-storage and still like industrial, very hard to find at any reasonable price. Um, and, and some build to rent. You know, we have stayed away from office. We, we did quite a bit of retail actually in 13, 14, 15 when everybody was really scared of it. And that worked out well too. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I don't really see all that much retail anymore. So I, I'd say we're agnostics, not the right word, Matt, but more interested in finding the right operators who have a really compelling strategy in, in whatever market they're in than necessarily targeting a specific uh, geographic area or asset type, which in general is a good way to approach life, right? Like you're just <laughs> looking for the best of the best and you're just not trying to have a preference on one thing over the other, I would say. Yeah. We've, you know, I've seen a lot of really interesting strategies over the years. So it, that's one thing I've always found fascinating about real estate is there's a, there's a lot of different ways to make money in real estate asset-based investing. And, you know, and different people take different approaches to it. But if you have good people that that understand whatever it is they're doing and the markets they're in, um, you can make money in a lot of different ways and spread your risk around. Yep. Well, Matt, fantastic conversation. I want to switch us now to our last round. We're calling this the five toppings. Our first one is what is your favorite book or what is a book you've read recently that's given you a paradigm shift? Um, I'd say one of my favorite all-time books is called Let's Get Real or Let's Not Play by Mahan Khalsa, which is a um, uh, sales book, but it's really more around, you know, communicating with other people. And I, that's that's uh, probably my favorite all-time sales book. Yeah, I heard you say that on a different podcast and wrote it down because it's really about getting down to the brass tacks of a conversation. Like, let's not BS around. Let's get down to it, right? Yeah, courage with consideration. There you go. There you go. Our second one is, I believe that the person you become 10 years from now is directly correlated to the habits that you have and the things you do every day. What are some of the habits that you have every day? Yeah, well, they've changed over the years. For a long time, I I was uh, I kept a journal. I, I would write and think every day and, and write down goals and so forth. I did that for many years, and I think that contributed largely a lot to you know the person I am today. I've gotten somewhat away from that as I've gotten older. Exercise is certainly a big piece of my life right it's like staying staying fit uh riding a bike so if i I could man i'd ride a bike every single day if i wasn't you know busy running these companies and yeah so but but yeah it's uh yeah i agree with you man habits are habits are everything you're you're making my heart warm i don't know if you can see my little cyclist back there i'm a i'm a cyclist as well so if you're out in portland let's ride there you go there you go our, um, our third one is what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, you become what you think about by Earl Nightingale as part of lead the field. But uh, yeah, it's like your life is what your thoughts make of it. Right. And then you can control your thoughts. Therefore you can control largely the direction of your life. So uh, 
Yeah, you become what you think about. Wasn't he the guy with the cassette tapes back in the day? He was, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was the, they call him the dean of personal development with the there baritone voice and then the whole, the whole nine. Yeah, he was, he was great. I love it. Our fourth one is, what is the thing that you're most proud of in your life? Um, well, my youngest son just graduated high school uh, last week. And so I've got two boys that are 20 and 18, and they both are um, pretty well-adjusted human beings. So having raised two kids that uh, putting out into the world that are in pretty good shape, I think that's um, probably my biggest accomplishment. And it sounds like you're about to get a pay raise. Yeah. Well, I'll get a pay reduction in the short run. I got to put them through college now. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, but in the not too distant future, hopefully. We just stroked our last check for uh, daycare. So um, yeah, we're, we're living large over here. Yeah. <laughs> well, Matt, our last one is if you could sit down and eat a bowl of ice cream with anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? Yeah, I probably would choose Earl Nightingale because he's the guy that had the most impact on on the direction of my life. Uh, you know, listening to those tapes in my late twenties kind of kind of really got me on the on the right trajectory. So, just like I'd love to have one opportunity to sit down with them and you know and chat. So, I would choose I choose Earl. Love it, love it. Well, Matt, fantastic conversation. Loved your experience there. Um, talking us through your experience. And then um, we're going to have to check out Verifest because we've got some administrative offload that we need to offload to a third-party resource soon. So um, you'll probably be hearing from me soon. But if our listeners wanted to reach out to you or learn more about your companies, where's the best place we can point them? Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. And then uh, you go to our company websites, fairwayamerica.com or veravest.com. And uh, you can find out a lot about us there. And it's all got my email address and everything else. So, But uh, LinkedIn, yeah, for me personally, for LinkedIn is probably the best spot. Perfect. We will leave those in the show notes. And then Matt, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Ice Cream with Investors. If you like what we serve you here, it would mean the world to me if you would like, subscribe, and leave a review on your favorite podcast app.